Oh, Father, that is our prayer this morning, that you, through the power of your word and through the probing ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would change our hearts, that we would be tender towards your word, that we would be filled with love for Jesus, hatred for sin, commitment to obedience. Teach us now, Lord, as we turn in our Bibles once again, as is our practice. And may your word do its perfect work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have been wondering what it must have been like on the last day. It's been over two years, you know. But then there came the last day. We're not given the information in the Bible, but as I imagine it, I, I would think that Joseph must have awakened before daylight. Surely his accommodations were most uncomfortable in that dungeon in Egypt. Plank boards, at best, covered with scattered straw. Perhaps as he turned on those planks as is the case often early in the pre-dawn darkness, your ears are the first to engage. And lying there with his eyes closed, listening to his prison, hearing the breathing, hearing the coughing, perhaps some clanging. No doubt the prison had a stillness to it yet that morning. Perhaps he heard some groaning from the new guy who had gotten beat pretty bad when he was dropped in there the day before. Perhaps Joseph made a mental note, get some warm water and soap and help that guy get cleaned up today. As he lie there on his plank bed, his mind focusing and becoming more aware, perhaps... It was his practice before he fully awakened even and rose for the day to turn to God in prayer. I think it might have been the same prayer every morning. Over 700 mornings. Lord, thank you for your protection through another night. Lord, You are great and greatly to be praised. May today my life be an offering of praise to you in this dark prison. Father, if it would be your will, Lord, would you please open these bars, these doors, these shackles. Lord, maybe today... You could get me out of here. Father, strengthen my heart and increase my faith. Help me to represent you well today. Oh, and Heavenly Father, please give a special grace to my father Jacob if he's still living today. Comfort him. Encourage him. Uphold him with your righteous right hand. 
Just another morning in the dungeon for Joseph over two years. On this day, though, perhaps just a few blocks away, not in a dungeon cell, not in a prison cell, but in a palace with the finest bedroom, with the finest mattresses, with the finest tapestry, with attending servants alert through the night for his utmost care, Pharaoh has been tossing and turning. This morning, he awakens. He has no thought of that young Hebrew man down in his prison. But he is highly vexed this morning. He has not slept well. In fact, he is deeply disturbed because he has been having the strangest of dreams. Shall we read about it in Genesis chapter 41? And let's move from our imagination to the text of Scripture. And let's go to Genesis 41. We're working our way here at Fellowship Bible Church through this wonderful book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And we're in this marvelous life story of this young Hebrew Joseph. Chapter 41 of Genesis begins like this. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. The two full years had passed is in the context of the chapter division from chapter 40. And it is this. It is that Joseph has been in prison for over two years. As has been the testimony of his life to date, you'll recall that it was... 17, excuse me, uh, 13 years before. He was 17 years old. He is now, the chapter is going to tell us in a minute, that he's turning 30. 13 years before, when his brothers grabbed him and threw him in a pit. Later in Genesis, it's going to recount that briefly, and it's going to tell us that he screamed and wailed for them to spare his life and let him go. They sold him to the Ishmaelite slave traders. They took him with an iron around his neck and chains on his feet all the way down into Egypt. He was placed up on the auction block of slavery. And you'll recall at that point, Potiphar purchased him, took him to his home. We don't know how much time went by, but Joseph surfaced there through the blessing of God to the very top of the staff of Potiphar's house. Potiphar was the chief of the guard. He worked for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you'll recall that sometime later, probably several years, at a point in time based on a backwards chronology of from this time when he's turning 30, probably about the age of 27 was the day that that woman caught him in the hallway and grabbed his coat and he ran for his life. It ended him up in prison and that's where we find him on this morning This morning, he awakens once again deep in the dungeon. He has surfaced there, and the the warden loves him. The warden has given him great responsibility. And by the blessing of God upon his hand, everything is going well in the prison system because of Joseph's attitude and godliness. But on this day, a day when Joseph had no idea that on God's calendar it was all going to come together. It was all going to begin to make sense. It was going to be as though the shades would go up, the light would pour in, and he would say, now I see what you're doing. Now I know a little better of why I've been here. You see, God has a plan of redemption for his people. God is 
strategically placing his man for his time. The problem is his man for 13 years has had no idea of what God is doing. And at this point, as Pharaoh is wakening in his palace room, he has no idea of what God is doing. In fact, he's dreamed, he's disturbed, he's vexed, but he thinks he's the king. He is the king in name. He thinks that he's the most powerful man that's ever lived. He thinks he's a god. He is worshipped by his people literally as a deity. He thinks that he's in control of the world. And he is, humanly speaking, the most powerful man on the face of the earth that day. But I have news for old Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's going to figure it out in a hurry. He's not in control. Let's read the story and... Let's see what happens. I'm going to break the story down into six parts, and it begins with, number one, Pharaoh's irritation. Pharaoh's irritation. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile River, and when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. He probably turned around a little bit, took a drink of water, tried to figure out what was going on, and laid back down and went back to sleep. He fell asleep again, verse 5, and he had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Dreams were important at the time of Egypt, and Pharaoh believed that the gods would speak to him through his dreams He kept an entire staff on hand, magicians, soothsayers, artists in the black, dark world. Egypt was filled with pagan idolatry, the worship of the spirit world, grotesque, frog-faced type creatures that crawled out of the Nile. That's who they prayed to. He wanted to know the answer to his dreams. He's disturbed. He's upset. This is a strange dream. Cannibal cows? Cows don't eat one another. Cannibal wheat head grains? What's going on? And his magicians and his interpreters of dreams, they either couldn't figure this one out, they could find no meaning, or they knew the meaning and were afraid to tell him the meaning. The next part of the story is the cupbearer's information. You remember the cupbearer, don't you? Well, he has some information for Pharaoh. Let's read about it. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. It's like, oh yeah, I remember something. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Remember these two guys? 
Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. He told him our, we told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. You remember that Joseph had asked him to be so kind as to mention him to the Pharaoh. Do you think it was by mistake that he forgot? You see, on God's calendar, there was a day, and this is the day. This was the right day for the cupbearer to have this bit of information that was going to change everything in Egypt. Pharaoh is irritated. He, he can't figure out this dream. The cupbearer speaks up with this information. The next section, verses 15 to 32, we'll call Joseph's interpretation, even though Joseph gives full credit to God. Pharaoh said to Joseph, excuse me, verse 14, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. And when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph said, you got that right, Pharaoh. I'm the dreaminator. I'm the man. It's about time you got me out of this prison. I know the answer to your problems. He didn't, did he? Look what he says. He says, Pharaoh, I cannot do it. It's not what Pharaoh wanted to hear. But look what Joseph says. But God, Elohim, the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One, Elohim will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph is telling a man who believes himself to be deity, who gladly receives the prayers and offerings of his people, who worships other gods, he's telling him in no uncertain terms, you got the wrong God. And my God will tell you the answer to your dreams. And Elohim is the right God. He's the almighty, all-powerful one. It's the same word used in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, Elohim created. Elohim spoke. And out of nothing, ex nihilo, that which was not, became. And he's always true to his word. He cannot deny himself. And he's the one that will solve your problems. I really like this Joseph guy. I cannot do it, he says, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, and he repeats his dream. In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the Nile, there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, Joseph, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I've never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. And they were cannibals, Joseph. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up, Joseph, and in my dreams, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing in a single stalk. And after them, seven other heads sprouted. They withered and thin and were scorched by the east wind. And the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of those worthless guys could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. 
God, Elohim, has revealed to Pharaoh that what he is about to do, the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream, Pharaoh. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of scorched grain by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. Joseph uh, Joseph goes on with his interpretation. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. And Pharaoh, listen to me. You think you're in charge. You think you're the honcho mancho. Listen, Pharaoh. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, Elohim, and Elohim will do it soon. Pharaoh, you're a figurehead. Pharaoh, you're not really in charge. You can't make it rain. You can't make the crops grow. You can't avoid famine. And God has given this to you in two parts because he really means it and it's going to happen soon. And there he is. That was Joseph's interpretation and it is very interesting to me that Joseph goes on with a recommendation. Part four of our story, Joseph's recommendation, verses 33 to 36. Look at this. Joseph continues speaking. I don't know if Pharaoh was set back in his seat. I don't know if Pharaoh's eyes were wide and his mouth was hanging open. I don't know if it's really still in the court. Everybody's just watching this Hebrew guy that had been shaven and showered and dressed up and brought before him that morning. And there they are. And here's Joseph, God's man in Pharaoh's court, speaking directly to him. Pharaoh, verse 33 You need to look for a discerning and a wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Listen, this is unsolicited counsel, unsolicited advice. He had no call from Pharaoh. But in the empower of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, in boldness, he looks at him and he says, let Pharaoh appoint commissioners, verse 34, over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in, in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. Pharaoh's sitting there. Joseph's talking. Pharaoh, here's your deal. It's going to happen. Elohim said it's going to happen. Elohim's in control, not you. You can print more money if you want. You can't change the economy. You can't make the rain grow. You can't do anything. What you need to do is take 20% of the yield for the next five years. And you need to store it in barns and silos. You need to store it away. And we need to distribute it out in cities. And you need to put administrators over all of them. And over all the administrators, you need to have a chief, a captain. You need to have an administrator that you can trust that will put it all together. There you go, Pharaoh. There's the information that you need. Pharaoh immediately recognizes, number five, Joseph's qualification. Joseph's qualification, verse 37 and 38. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. Can you see their heads nodding? You know those Egyptian guys with the big things up on their head? Oh, yes. 
Ooh, ah, good stuff. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. They didn't know what to do. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. How do you think Joseph felt right then? (laughs) Whoa. Whoa. I woke up this morning, and the first thing I did is I felt through my hair and tried to pick out the bugs. And then the guy come down to me and he said, Joseph, you have to get shaved. You have to get showered over here. Here's some new clothing. Put it on. Pharaoh wants to see you. This is not a normal day. This is God's day. God has a plan, Joseph, and you're God's man, and the plan and the man are going to intersect on this day. You better be ready. And from being a prisoner in the dungeon, in the ground, look at the tremendous transformation. I call this number six, the day of transformation. Let's go on a few more verses and we'll stop here. There's too much material for one Sunday. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 41, the day of transformation, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Think about this. I hereby, Joseph, put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, hands it to the serpent, puts it, servant, puts it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and he put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, make way, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnanath Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I think that's a big day in Joseph's life. He even ends the day with a pagan wife he wasn't even looking for. Amazing, isn't it? There he is. What a remarkable young man. From the age of 17 to 30... He's either had a chain around his neck, around his ankles, or he's been serving in servitude to to powerful people at their beck and call and whim. Joseph has been in slavery or in prison for for, um, 13 years. And God has been preparing Joseph for this day. And Joseph had no idea. I have to believe that it all starts coming together in his head. Turns out, Hey, Joseph says, it wasn't a waste of time. God didn't make a mistake. God didn't goof. God didn't forget me. God didn't overlook me. For 13 years, God had been doing exactly what he had wanted to do with Joseph. Do you remember Joseph at 17? Didn't have enough sense to keep his mouth shut. Joseph at 17, an immature young boy, Not ready to be his man in spiritual leadership. Not ready to be his leader in a foreign land. 
Not strong enough to be able to administrate the most powerful populated country in the world of that day. And God took him to the university of the dungeon. And he began to shape him. I think it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon that said something to this end. That God, when God wants to make a man, God often begins by breaking that man. The lights begin to flash on in Joseph's mind. I'd like to kick my imagination back in. Forgive me for not expositing for the rest of our message. But it occurred to me that I think at this point, right here in our message, there are some really valuable spiritual lessons that we need. I think that you will agree with me that it must have happened quite like this. And I would like for the remainder of our time, and we will not bog down, thinking in terms of this day, on the calendar day, when God's plan and God's man come together at just the right time for just his purposes, a lot of confusion was cleared up in Joseph's mind. He is now standing before Pharaoh, wearing his ring, wearing his robe, riding in his chariots, administrating his country, a qualified spiritual leader because of 13 years in the dungeon. And I would like to suggest to you that there are at least eight vital lessons that the spiritual leader has to learn. And you could argue that there was no greater place for Pharaoh to learn them than in the dungeon. How did Joseph, this punk kid, mouthing off to his brothers about his dreams, 13 years later, at age 30, stand before Pharaoh, spiritually qualified to be God's man, because in the dungeon he learned these lessons. Lesson number one, to be qualified to leave spiritually, he had to learn the spiritual leadership lesson of humility. Can you think of a better place to learn humility than emptying the latrine buckets of Potiphar and Pharaoh's prison? God, I don't do latrine buckets. God, this is not my plan for my life. God, you don't understand. I am really a sharp cookie. God, I have great capacity. I have great potential. Why am I here? I'll tell you why you're here, Joseph, because Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33 says, The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom, and humility comes before honor, Proverbs fifteen thirty three, Proverbs sixteen nine, Joseph, you have something to learn about humility. Proverbs sixteen nine, Joseph, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, God can't use a spiritual leader who is haughty. He ruins God's work. I mean, as a manner of speaking, God is sovereign over the affairs of men. James chapter 4, verse 6, quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 in James 4. He quotes Proverbs. He says that he mocks, proud mockers, God does, but he gives grace to the humble. I need a qualified spiritual man, Joseph. I need a humble man that I can strategically place in Egypt for the redemption of my people and for the preservation of my people. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
I don't know what your sphere of influence is, but if you're a school teacher, you're a leader. If you're the head of a household or if you have children, you're a leader. If you're a grandparent, you have some sphere of influence. You're a leader. If you uh, work in, a, in an office where there's other people, you have the potential to influence. You're a leader. Some of you aspire to leadership in ministry. And I think these lessons are very important. Reflective in the life of Joseph, learned in difficult, dark places, but necessary to be qualified for spiritual leadership. Number one, humility. Will you turn to the New Testament with me? And let's continue on this first point for just a minute. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we have in our New Testament three passages of Scripture that list for us the qualifications of a spiritual leader. They are found in Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, I want you to notice our theme of humility in 1 Peter chapter 5. You want God to use you? You want God to use you in your sphere of influence, whatever that may be? You aspire for leadership at any level? You think God could use you in greater ways? You at least want to be the leader of your own home? Well, then... Quality number one is humility. God doesn't lift up spiritual leaders until they're humble of heart. Look what Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Look at the next word. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager, look at the next word, to serve. Only humble people serve. Look at the next phrase. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, listen to me. In the same way... Be submissive, that's humility, to those who are older. You will never be used of God until you learn to submit to authority, until you have a humble heart. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Boy, that's Joseph's testimony, isn't it? Humble yourselves, therefore. There's the word again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Well, when is that time, God? That's not your job to worry about. God is the keeper of the calendar. You walk in humility, and God will intersect you with his plan when you're ready to be his man or woman. Quality number one, humility. And boy, we see that in Joseph's life, don't we? From an arrogant, kind of cocky 17-year-old to a humble-hearted, confident, spiritual leader at age 30. He's been to the University of Egyptian Dungeons. God humbled him. Second quality, smacks right in the face of contemporary thought on what is success But I think it is also an obvious second quality that God used these 13 years in Joseph's life, developing him for spiritual leadership in Egypt. And it is this. It is servanthood. Servanthood. Turn with me to Mark's gospel. We see it in 1 Peter 5 where we just were. He says, 
not lording it over those like the world around you, but being a humble servant. But Jesus taught on this subject in Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10 and verse 35 to 45. While you're turning there, this kind of reminds me of three young up and coming successful businessmen who were uh, eating a late supper at Applebee's one night around the table and they were talking about what it would mean to them to truly have attained success in their lives. The first one said, well, I think that I'll know that I've arrived and been successful whenever I'm summoned to the White House for a personal private meeting with the President of the United States. The other two guys were listening and one of them put down his glass Looked at him and he said, yeah, I think to me, success would mean meeting with the president in the Oval Office, having the hotline phone ring during our talk and watching the president ignore it because of me. That's what success is. Third guy had a piece of steak in his mouth. He finished chewing it, put down his fork and he said, no, this is what success is to me. You guys have got it all wrong. You're a success if you're privately consulting with the president in the Oval Office and the hotline rings and he picks it up and he says to you, it's for you. That's the way our world thinks, isn't it? Our world thinks power, prestige, important people, money, stuff, success. Jesus said, you're a success when you're a servant. You're ready to lead when you've got an idea of what servanthood is all about. Clock ticks quickly on us, but let's just remind ourselves of this passage. James and John have asked Jesus in in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, have asked Jesus if if he couldn't give them kind of the inside corner on his uh, leadership appointments when he establishes his kingdom. They don't get it. It's a spiritual kingdom. He thinks they're going to set up a real kingdom. They think he's going to set up a real kingdom like they understand, and they want to be on the left and on the right. Jesus says, you guys got it all wrong, and he goes right to the point in verse 42, and he says... You know, verse 42, Mark 10, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be, the next word, the slave of all. You want to be great for God? then you better become a slave. That's really the better translation of that word. Almost always when it's used in our New Testament as servant, it's been cleaned up at a a certain level. Clearly, it should be understood as exactly what Joseph was in that dungeon. Nothing but a slave in captivity who was responsible to do whatever the master says, no matter how detestable, or unappetizing the task might be. Can you think of a better place to learn servanthood than administrating a jailhouse? There he was, 13 years, wondering, putting another scratch on the wall, marking the days, and for over 700 days, wondering, Lord, what's going on? Well, Joseph, an education takes time. I have a very special job for you, Joseph, and you are going to be needed 
at the highest levels, the greatest demands, the utmost for organization, and I cannot have you cracking under the strain. Number one, I'm looking for your heart of humility. Number two, I'm looking for your spirit of servanthood. Number three, let me just rattle these off. They're not in the text. They just came from my meditations, so we'll not feel badly about not developing them. But I think they're true. Humility, number one. Servanthood, number two. I think patience is required of a spiritual leader. Wouldn't you say? In the New Testament... It says self-control and not given to anger and not a brawler, somebody who will fight. That means you have to be patient with people. They don't always like you, Joseph. They're not always going to think you're the man. You need to be patient and you need to be calm. Psalm 37 says in verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do you think Joseph knows something about patience? I think so. Number four, courage. Courage. You might write down Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Repeatedly, God told General Joshua before he led the children of Israel into the promised land in Moses' place, you need to be bold. You need to be courageous. I'm going to be with you. Can you think of a better school for courage than a prison? How scared do you think Joseph was half the time? How big do you think these ogres were in that prison? How many times was he hit with an elbow upside the head? How many times did he enter a prison cell in his administrative duties and those guys hissed at him and told him any number of things that they were going to do to him as soon as he turned his back or fell asleep? Joseph had to be a man of courage, and he learned it. Qualifying him to be a spiritual leader. See, God doesn't need... God doesn't need wimps. God doesn't need, God doesn't need compromisers. God doesn't need men who capitulate in spiritual leadership. He needs men who will stand with courage for what is right and carry out his bidding. And Joseph qualified. He wasn't ready at 17. He evidently wasn't ready at 27, but at age, age 30, 13 years in the school of the dungeon, he's ready. Now's the time, Joseph. Discipline, we, or integrity, number five, integrity. Proverbs 11, 1 through 3, you can read that on your own time. We know, don't we, from, his ter- from the testimony of Moses the historian, that Joseph passed the integrity test. You remember the day he walked down that hallway, right? And no one else was around? But that woman was there. And he had integrity, didn't he? He had integrity. That's a spiritual leader. Self-control goes along with our next quality, discipline. Discipline. He had to keep focused. He had to wake up in the morning and know that God was in control and discipline his mind onto godliness. Discipline his body to do the right things that day. Discipline his words and not talk back to the trash talkers in the prison who threw their beans back in his face and splattered him when he would try to serve them, it's my imagination, of course. I don't have any reason to believe that what went on in Joseph's prison is much different than what goes on in a, a dirty, dark prison anywhere else in the world. People who are filled with hate and anger and rage. And people that Joseph wanted to lash back. 
Instead, the discipline to turn the other cheek. That's a godly leader. That's a spiritual man. How about, how about organization and administration, number seven? And I got to thinking that you can argue that it's okay to call his time in Potiphar's house an internship. He got connected. When he was serving for those years from somewhere around age after 17 up until about age 27, as he rose through the ranks in Potiphar's house and service in Potiphar's house, he had to have learned all kinds of people's names. He had to have learned the flow of government. He had had to learn the connections. He learned he learned people who were people you avoided, people who had answers. He learned administrative technique. He administrated Potiphar's house to the nth degree. God trained him so that when the time came and Pharaoh needed to say, I need a guy who can run my entire country for the next seven years, Joseph standing there, that he was the obvious choice. Here's my O&A guy, my organizer and my administrator. What phenomenal training he had been through. And finally, number eight, the qualified spiritual leader will be a man of prayer, won't he? The qualified spiritual leader will be a man of prayer. If you're taking notes, you might write down this little phrase. Self-reliance is documented by prayerlessness. Self-reliance is documented by prayerlessness. Do you think that Joseph learned something about prayer since the day his brothers tossed him in the pit and he screamed out for his life? Do you think Joseph had to know something about prayer? Lying under the star-riddled night, somewhere between home and Egypt, with his legs chained? Lord, here I am. Lord, don't forget me. Lord, protect me. Do you think Joseph learned something about prayer when they stripped him down and put him up on the auction block in downtown Egypt and said, This boy's for sale. Great servant boy. What do you think's going on inside of Joseph? He's crying out to God. Lord, Lord, would you please connect me to just the right person? Please, Lord, meet my needs. I don't know what they're feeding that baby, but it's good stuff. (laughs) He learned something about prayer, didn't he? He had to have, right? Every turn and every circumstance in his life, his heart had to turn in prayer to God. So now he's standing in front of Pharaoh with the whole country to administrate. Do you think that prayer is important to his leadership role? I would say so. Eight qualities of the qualified spiritual leader that Joseph learned in the dungeon. Humility, servanthood, patience, courage, integrity, discipline, organization and administration, and prayer. You want to be a leader? You want to be a qualified spiritual leader? There's eight things that you can allow God to begin to hammer away at in your life. Can I say, though, that if you're not a child of God, it does no good to try to be a spiritual leader until you're a new creation in Christ, until the old things have passed away and that everything has become new. That is, your sin is forgiven and you're in Christ. That's the starting point, isn't it? 
that God will have an individual that, through whom they can work. Not a self-reliant, arrogant, self-willed, stubborn, sinful person, but a blood-washed, redeemed, born-again man or woman through whom God can begin to school and shape these qualities for spiritual leadership. I hope that's you. Let's pray. Father, would you change our hearts today, please? Would you begin to show us the rough areas that you're working on? Would you help us take our eyes off the calendar, wondering when our big breakthrough day is coming, and help us to just be faithful wherever we are, letting you develop us and train us and groom us and trusting you that whenever you have a plan and you need a man or a woman, that you can connect the dots from there. In the meantime, Lord, even if we're in the dungeon, help us just to be faithful. Trusting you. Thank you for Joseph's marvelous pattern and example. May we learn from it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.